This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So before I start, let me explain the general approach that I'm taking to the theme of this symposium today. As an anthropologist, my first port of call for addressing any question about human beings has to be the place where I've done fieldwork. This is because while all human beings are confronted by the same fundamental questions and approach them through the same fundamental capacities that are afforded by their minds and bodies, they always bring to the task of framing the questions and finding the answers tools that are specific to the historical and cultural context in which they live and die. And to talk sensibly about the human beings, their questions and answers, one has to know this context well. So, let me take you to Betania, a small fishing village on the west coast of Madagascar. The inhabitants are fishing folk who describe themselves as Vesu, people of the sea. This is where I've done field work on and off for the past 30 years. During this time, I've seen babies being born, children grow into adults, adults age into wise elders, and lots of people of all ages die and being buried in the village cemetery. In Betania, when someone dies, the whole village springs into action. Depending on the age and the status of the deceased, the funerary proceedings last between one and four days. Each day, villagers are expected to attend two communal meals and a vigil. As you can imagine, organizing such events is a huge undertaking for the bereaved family. And while a few individuals are in charge of preparing the corpse and of dealing with the deceased closest and most distressed relatives, The vast majority of family members will be busy dealing with other things. Their first task is to formally announce the death to everyone who has a right to be told. A young boy is sent to all the households in the village. All the youths are dispatched to more distant locations. A text is delivered to the radio station in the nearest town, a text which announces who has died and lists all the names of all the people the death is being announced to. Meanwhile, money is urgently collected from family members. The money is needed to buy the vast quantities of rice and meat for the communal meals and the rum and coffee for the vigils. It is important that the crowds are not let down, for example, by serving them beans or fish instead of meat or by running out of rum halfway through the night. (laughs) It is shameful, ma menace, to fail to pull it off not only because this shows that the most immediate family doesn't have the necessary resources, but also, and perhaps most importantly, because it shows that they don't have enough relations willing to help them out. In fact, everyone in attendance is supposed to make a monetary contribution. As the crowds assemble, the elders of the bereaved family set themselves up in one of their houses. There, they receive representatives of each of the village households and those visitors who have come from further afield. After a certain amount of highly formalized exchanges, the visitors produce an envelope, one insisting that it's nothing nothing big, just a little thing. The envelope is accepted by the elders, 
who insists that it's not small, but a big thing. After some more back and forth, the visitors leave, the envelope is opened, the money counted, and the amount carefully written down in a special notebook. The visitors will have done the same at their end, consulting their notebooks to find out how much they had received from the bereaved family last time they themselves had a funeral. (laughs) And noting down the amounts they are now contributing. In this way, over time, people ensure that they reciprocate the contributions they have received, thus maintaining good relations and not losing face. This kind of reciprocation doesn't always work, but it's always closely monitored. Such and such a family has brought less than expected. Is it because they're really struggling or because they're trying to slight us? Another family has brought much more. Are they just being generous or are they testing us to see whether we can match their contribution in the future? Now, the reasoning I'm mentioning all of this, the announcing, the collecting, the giving, the receiving, the writing down, is that these are the activities that dominate the funeral. Of course, funerals wouldn't happen if there was no death. But the point I wish to stress is that for the vast majority of people, the deceased is actually quite peripheral to their experience and preoccupations. The same applies to their emotional experience. Of course, they are close family members who are highly distressed and grief-stricken. But for most participants, funerals elicit rather different emotions, ranging from plain boredom to alcohol-induced exhilaration to sexual arousal. This last one applies especially to youths who find in funerals the welcome opportunity to meet visitors from distant villagers who, with any luck, are not genealogically related to them and are thus permissible sexual partners. Indeed, it's well known that many long-lasting marriages started at the edges of a vigil. (laughs) Now, to put all this into context, consider that, save for the crowds that gather for the much rarer construction of tombs, events which are planned in advance and are announced and therefore have uh, a better attended, Funerals are the largest gatherings of people that villagers participate in, and they are events which give them a first-hand experience of the large-scale social system to which they belong. Here are these hundreds of other people, and here we are, my parents, my children, my siblings, my in-laws, just one note of this vast network of relations. And while funerals give people a snapshot of the existing social landscape, there are also occasions for acting on it and changing its shape. For example, by extending or withdrawing the announcement of the death, by succeeding or failing to put on a good funeral, by giving a small or a large or a balanced contribution, and most literally by having sex, which has the potential of adding new life to the mix. You will have noticed that quite deliberately I've led you away from the deceased and the raw emotions that surround death. I've done so to dispel the common sense assumption that funerals are centrally about death and grief and to stress the point that they are instead largely about the gathering of crowds, the expectations and obligations that people have, the appraisal and manipulation of the social relations in which they live. 
Still, there is a dead body at the center of it all. A body that is fast decomposing and that, sooner or later, must be removed from the village, taken to the cemetery, and placed inside a tomb, one of the many large enclosures that are scattered around the sand dunes. Once the body is buried, an elder gives an explanatory speech informing the other dead of what has just happened. He will then state that the deceased has arrived at the place where he is, Plasimisiasi, that nothing more is left to be done and that the crowd should now disperse and go home. The place where, the place where he or she is is a misleadingly simple expression, which in fact captures key aspects of the existential, existential transformation brought about by death. First note that this is not an expression that is used to refer to the journeys of living people. Living people arrive here and there, but they don't arrive at the place where they are. This makes sense because living people are always on the move. They leave, they arrive, and then they move on. That people, by contrast, arrive inside their tombs, and there they stay. Second, the expression draws attention to the fact that the deceased arrives at that specific place, this tomb, not another one. The choice of tomb is a highly contentious affair. This is because, as people often told me by way of explanation, we can't cut up corpses into pieces. In other words, the deceased cannot be buried in more than one tomb. In theory, the choice of burial is determined by strict rules which say that children's bones belong to their mother unless the father acquires them through ritual means. In practice, lots of other factors can feed into the final decision, but the point is that when the decision is made, it is final. The overall point I want to get across is this. By placing the dead in the place where they are, the living create a radically different social system to the one they experience when they are alive. A system that lacks movement. The dead arrive once and for all. A system that is not open to negotiation. The dead are either here or there. A system of social relations that are no longer a work in progress. The dead are no longer susceptible to the vagaries of personal success and failures, likes and dislikes, distance and proximity, and so on. From this perspective, it's not surprising that the tombs which create this alternative social system are the most solid and lasting structures that people build. They used to be made of hard wood, but once cement became available in the 60s, it soon became the material of choice because, as people say, it's harder, more durable, unmovable. Given the eerie stillness of corpses, it's also not surprising that humans, not just in Madagascar, imagine the transition from life to death as one that turns the movement of life into immobility and that removes the deceased from the give and take of human interactions, as we've just seen. But humans, not just in Madagascar, seem also prone to imagine something a little more paradoxical, namely that the social systems created through death are long-lasting, that they transcend the now-on, now-off temporality of life. For this to happen, however, something has to give. To put it in the most, most general terms, 
The complexity of life has to be reduced. The makeup of the living person has to be stripped down to its core. Its essence has to be distilled out of its many entanglements. Only when this happens can people begin to imagine that the present is just a replica of the past and that the future will be a replica of the present. In other words, they can begin to imagine a system that defies the passage of time. I'm getting ahead of myself here, so let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate where I'm actually heading. First to the Vesu. The living, people say, have at least eight ancestral lines of descent. Those of their eight great-grandparents. In fact, they would have more if they could remember them. This means that in life, each person is made up of, is made up of at least eight known ancestral parts, which are unique to that person because only that person and her full siblings share that exact combination of ancestral sources. And so when that person dies, that unique combination also comes to an end. But now imagine that when that person dies, she's buried inside a tomb which contains only individuals who share one of her eight ancestral lines of descent. In being placed there, all of these individuals had seven of their ancestral lines stripped away, thus being reduced to that one that they have in common. And so instead of being unique combinations that are here today and gone tomorrow, they all become a replica of one another, a continuation of that one line of ancestry. And so in and through death, people begin to imagine a social grouping, what Vesu call one kind of people, and anthropologists call a unilineal descent group, which has continuity through time. Let me briefly turn to another example to explain why death in particular is such a powerful moment for imagining this type of continuity. For this, I draw on the work of anthropologist Martha McIntyre, who has worked on the island of Tubetube, one of the many islands in the Masim region of Papua New Guinea. Here, as in many other places in this region, the social groupings that last through time are named matrilineages, each made up of all the people who can trace descent through women to the same female forebear. People here have a folk theory of the human body, which says that bones are made up of mother's milk, which in turn is passed from mother to daughter down the generations. The bones, in other words, are quintessentially maternal substance, which is sourced all the way up to that founding female forebear. This means that quite literally, the members of the matrilineage share the exact same bones. When it comes to bones, they are one kind of people. Each person just a replica of one another through time. But you can see the problem with this idea. Living people, kicking, screaming, crawling babies, are not made of just bones. To be viable persons, they also need blood and flesh. This soft and wobbly stuff, the folk theory goes, comes from the father. And because one's father belongs to a different matrilineage from that of one's mother, the marriage would otherwise be incestuous, the living person can only ever be a mixed up person, an idiosyncratic combination of these maternal bones and those paternal blood and flesh. 
a combination which, like the eight ancestral sources of the Vesu, is here to, today and gone tomorrow. However, death resolves the problem. Quite literally, the process of decomposition gets rid of the paternal stuff, leaving just the maternal bones. In addition, funerals consist of complex transactions in which goods that represent flesh and blood are sent back to the family of the father of the deceased, which originally contributed to the person. In this way, funerals are thought to deconceive the person who has just died. As a result of all this, the people of Tubetube come to imagine the essence of their matrilineage, the bones in their pure and unadulterated form, as lasting through time, originating in the ancestral past and ready to be passed on to the next generation. This, then, is why death is a source of celebration. Sure, people are born, reproduce, age, and die. As individuals, they are here today and gone tomorrow. But death lends itself, aided by a lot of ritual and imaginative work, to the creation of systems of social relations between the dead and the living, between the living and the unborn, which are long-lasting, defy the passage of time, and transcend death itself. Let me conclude with a reflection on the contemporary relevance of what I've presented you today, drawing on material from some very far-off lands and people. The reflection is that there is an obvious dark side to the celebration, a dark side which my Vesu friends, I just state this without having time to explain, have found ways of overcoming, but others have not. The dark side is that as you might have noticed, the process of creating long-lasting social systems based on kinds of people that are nicely sorted into separate tombs or based on the recovery of pure and pristine bones gives rise to a kind of essentialist thinking that can very quickly turn into ethnic hatred, parochial nationalism, and racial discrimination. So that instead of, instead of building walls around the dead, we find walls sprouting up everywhere to divide people who are believed to be essentially like us from people who are believed to be essentially different from us. And when this happens, the celebration is over. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.